then. Children of the night, what music they make. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're here. Ah. Welcome to my nightmare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Oh, Kill you all. You don't know what death is. We belong dead. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I shot him six times. All the above. Free your life. <laughs> <laughs> to a new world of pots and monsters. How do you do? Pods and Monsters feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without a friendly word of warning. We're about to unfold the story of Frankenstein. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you would not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to, uh, well, we've warned you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pods and Monsters. My name is Robert. My name is Cynthia. And today, we are going to be talking about Frankenstein. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions, Frankenstein. Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein together are my most favorite movies of all time. Frankenstein's the first movie I remember ever seeing. Really? Yeah. Do you remember how old you were? Toddler age, like two or three. I remember um, being at my grandma's house Mm -hmm. uh, with my uncle and, you know, we would stay up late and uh, watch monster movies. And Frankenstein was the one we would watch most often. It was always, it seemed to usually be Frankenstein, the mummy and the Phantom of the Opera. When you were a toddler. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's just really intense for a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But. Frankenstein was really the one that uh, got me into Universal Monsters. Well, it's a fantastic movie or picture, as you would call it. (laughs) It's really great. So we watched the 1931 version of Frankenstein. Yes. And you've seen it before. We saw it in the theater before, haven't we? Yeah, we watched a triple feature, I believe. Uh, Frankenstein, Bride and Son? Yes. Okay. Uh, So what what do you remember? Do you remember it pretty well? Um, I remembered it... Mm, yeah mm, no (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if it's i'm at i'm at a point now in my life where uh definitely information is being replaced by other information um i feel like that happens with me not with monster movies though but with other stuff (laughs) so i knew i mean obviously i knew the basic idea of it which was a scientist creating essentially a monster zombie person uh-huh. that frankenstein is uh, the doctor and not the monster but now the monster is now synonymous with that name um, yeah and l- let me tell you something about this i i, I need i need to give everyone me. a little bit of a hot take here yeah yeah go for it 
I am one of the biggest monster fans, you know, <laughs> that at least in my group of friends. And when someone tells me, you know, Frankenstein is not the name of the monster, it's the doctor. Like, obviously, I know that, but I call him Frankenstein. Everyone calls the monster Frankenstein. And in fact, in the movie Son of Frankenstein, Basil Rathbone says why nine out of ten people call that misshapen creation of my father's Frankenstein. <laughs> Just like that. The conductor announces Frankenstein. Frankenstein, because he's on a train. What? (laughs) (laughs) It's Son of Frankenstein. The Son of Frankenstein and his wife are on a train, and they're traveling to the town of Frankenstein. Oh. And he's saying, uh, you know, talking about his father, but creating this monster. And he says, why nine out of ten people call the misshapen creation of my father's? And the conductor then says, Frankenstein. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's just one of my big pet peeves. Like, it's okay to call the monster Frankenstein. We all know the doctor is Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. I mean, but you never know who that information is new to. So... Well, I guess so. (laughs) Well, yeah, so I I remembered that he had created this monster. I remember that the monster was made from an abnormal brain. I remember that there is a wedding that's happening. Mm -hmm. I remember the little girl scene. Little Maria. I remember the windmill. Or the windmill. Windmill. (laughs) Is it a meal that you're going to eat? Yeah, it's the wind, and it's all like, nom, 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 nom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you remember some, his flat head? I do. There were just some things that maybe I don't fully, I didn't fully remember. Like, I didn't really remember too much about the doctor. Dr. Waldman? Yeah. I did not remember Victor at all. Mm-hmm. Or how shady Victor is. Right. Oh, and I guess I didn't remember the Burger Master. <laughs> <laughs> the Burger Master. <laughs> Uh, that was, the mayor I, of McDonald's, <laughs> Mayor McCheese. Yeah, but other than that, I mean, I I pretty much remembered. Okay. The bigger plot points, I guess. All right. Well, uh, shall we get into it then? Yeah, totally. As usual, uh, there will be spoilers, even though this movie is eighty something years old. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's begin. Let's uh, go through Frankenstein. And so the movie opens with this warning from a person that directly addresses the audience. And I believe that we had discussed this actor in our past one of our past episodes, the Dracula episode. Yeah, the actor that comes out to give the warning is the actor who plays Dr. Waldman in this movie, who also played Van Helsing in Dracula. Uh, his name is Edward Van Sloan, and he gives that little uh, friendly word of warning. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to, uh, well, we've warned you. Yes, so I thought it was great. Um, it really sets up, I guess, how morbid the story might be. Right. Um, and I could definitely see it being a morbid story in the 1930s. Well, yeah, in 1931, it was like the scariest thing in the world. I mean, maybe the only thing that was scarier was the unmasking of the Phantom of the Opera. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Also, it was a bit of a publicity stunt. And, you know, they did other publicity stunts for the movie. For instance, uh, in early screenings, they had ambulances that were outside of theaters uh, <laughs> just in case. And then uh, Forrest Ackerman, who is who was the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, mm-hmm. you know, was a big monster fan his whole life and he saw Frankenstein several times 
uh, in its initial run. And the first day, I think he saw it like three or four times in the theater. And every time at the same point, the same lady would run up and scream and run out of the theater. <laughs> That's Forey's first foray into publicity. I knew you were going to say foray. Should I, I not? knew it. No, that's okay. That's hilarious. I just, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to be so predictable. <laughs> Could feel it in my bones. So we have this really awesome title screen that comes up where it's presenting the entire cast and crew, and it's on these faces and these eyes that is so unsettling. Um, and that is definitely a detail that I don't think I caught before, and I really liked it. Um, yeah, I I have always loved that. And because, you know, being a little kid watching it for the first time, or a bunch of times as a little kid, that was the thing, maybe the thing that stuck with me the most, it was that music and those swirling eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's just so eerie and such a neat artistic decision. Yeah, it's very effective. Um, you'll notice when the cast comes up that the monster is credited with a question mark. Yeah, that, that's another great idea. Because I love that. Also, you know, Boris Karloff had been in other movies by that point, but he wasn't a household name. No oh, okay. one. He's not the type of actor that you would recognize and say, oh, it's Boris Karloff. So having him as a question mark was really a brilliant thing to start the movie mm-hmm. because could this be a real dead body? Who yeah, knows? and it really stands out and it leaves you unsettled aside from having like all of these eyes staring at you. And Right. Um, and then by the time they did Bride of Frankenstein, Karloff was such a, a huge star that he got top billing, but they used a question mark for the monster's mate. Oh, I noticed that this movie is based on a book and a play. Yeah. Um, Much like Dracula, there was a a play version of the story. Which makes sense to how things are shot, aside from it being like um, the shooting style. But there's just some things about it. I think the longer we go on with this, the more I will become more familiar with how movies were shot in that time. Yeah. Um, I mean, lots of things weren't invented at that point uh, in terms of motion in cameras, Mm -hmm. meaning dollies and things like that. And still, this is another movie that doesn't have music in it. Yeah. It is an early movie where you won't see those upgrades. But by the time Bride of Frankenstein comes in 1935, you'll see a big jump. And then by the time you get to Son of Frankenstein in 1939, it's a huge leap because movies are huge, extravagant things now. Because by 1939, you had uh, Gone with the Wind that year. Mm, Okay. Wizard of Oz and so everything you could see the technology raising its level as the sequels go on which is amazing it's really interesting to see just the starting point you know the base of yeah. where these movies were built off of I'm not sure how much of the play was in the movie that's what I was wondering yeah I have to look into that to see if uh, there's a copy of that play somewhere have you read you've read Frankenstein I haven't read Frankenstein actually really I'm very surprised. Okay. I think maybe you should do that. Yeah, I never read Frankenstein. You should. Maybe I'll read it to you as we go to sleep tonight. No. Um, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so finally we get to the uh, the start of the movie, or past the credits, um, and it opens on this uh, really great burial scene. This set I really liked and I know that they reused this backdrop a lot and I love that there's like these little folds in the backdrop (laughs) that it's not entirely perfect but it's so gloomy and just like cloudy and moody 
And um, it's just so perfect for this really somber scene where we first meet Frankenstein. And I wrote down Renfield. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, Here we meet Colin Clive and Dwight Fry. Colin Clive played uh, Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. He was in another movie by director James Whale uh, before this. And James Whale wanted to work with him again and brought him on. And I assume that Dwight Fry was brought in because of his performance in Dracula. But Dwight Fry, you know, another great horror actor and here lots of people would assume he's playing Igor the hunchbacked assistant but his name is Fritz yes and which we don't find out for for quite a while yeah um he doesn't say his name so I put Renfield but not Renfield I think they call him a dwarf he is very tiny yeah but he's not that hunchback but I mean he's just a tiny guy in general yeah so, you know, the this burial scene, mm-hmm. it really freaked out audiences in 1931. Why? Because it's just something that's not portrayed in movies. Like, audiences in 1931 were really freaked out just by the sound of the dirt hitting the coffin when the guy is burying the dead body. Oh, wow. Like, something as simple as that is just... Not something that you see in a theater with your family around. Yeah, it's true. It really freaked people out. Yeah, I can see. I mean, it is unsettling imagery. Yeah. For sure. So Frankenstein and Fritz are, or sorry, Henry. I'm just going to call him Henry. I might call him Frankenstein. Yeah. Henry. In the book, his name is Victor. I don't know what the reason they changed his name to Henry is. So that's what I was going to ask also. Because then once we do meet Victor, I was like, "Mm, are they brothers? Nope. I wonder if the play, uh, his name was Henry. Maybe. So Renfield and... Fritz. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Frankenstein and um, Fritz are creeping on this on this burial happening and then end up exhuming this coffin and frankenstein has a moment where he like kind of just puts his cheek up to the coffin and talks to it and it's just like he's just resting waiting for a new life to come so he has a moment he has a little tender moment with this coffin before they carry it away that's one of my favorite lines i remember in high school I wrote a short horror story and I took that line from the movie and put it in there and the mm-hmm. teacher thought I was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, I don't know if you noticed, but um, a little subtle piece of imagery that James Whale does, which is so great, when they're digging up the body. Mm-hmm. Did you notice the big figure of death behind them? Yes. So I love that figure of death. But did you notice when they were digging it up, Dr. Frankenstein, he shovels up the dirt and he shovels and scoops it into death's face, throwing dirt in the face of death like he death is nothing to him. He could bring it back. No, I didn't notice that. That's, yeah, that's so, great. So great. Yeah, no, super great. So then they uh, they cart away this coffin and on the way they find a uh, hanging man. So Fritz goes up there cuts him down Uh and I mean I was just really confused as to why Henry was a little like the brain is no good the neck is broken it's a hanging man well when someone hangs they don't necessarily always break their neck I guess I would just assume though but if I had an assistant climbing up gallows I'd be like get up there and let's (laughs) check this out (laughs) I always like how Fritz says here I come here I come 
<laughs> yeah, me too. And then he just like <laughs> gently plops down, but like from the side, I like know. he jumps into frame. But every time you text me that you're here and I have to come downstairs and I say, here I come in my mind, that's how I'm texting you. <laughs> here I come. Here's the knife. Here I come. <laughs> I'm glad that he's taking um, precautions and doesn't jump down with a knife. Yeah. So then uh, from there, we end up going to medical school, and I thought this set was really great, and it sets up the abnormal brain and the normal brain scenario, and we also meet the professor. Let me tell you how much I love that bouncing skeleton that they have. (laughs) (laughs) This whole set's really good. I will say my one really big takeaway about this movie was how elaborate Mm -hmm. the sets were. They panned a lot from room to room, which I really, really loved. There's a scene later on in the film where they do that. And then I also felt like this set was very, I would assume, accurate to the time period for a medical school. Yeah, like Um, like a college. Yeah. So it was very like academic and I wouldn't want to say sterile because it wasn't very sterile, but it was very neat and clean. And then when you get to Frankenstein's lair in the lighthouse. Is it a lighthouse? I can't remember. Let's call it a tower. A tower. Whatever. You know, which, by the way, it's funny because his father refers to it as a windmill, but the windmill comes at the end. I know. And that's (laughs) that's what I was thinking also um, about the windmill. I was like, no, that's a completely different windmill. It's a completely different building. The tower, the laboratory, is built in a very surreal way. It is. And it, I think, reflects his madness and how off everything is that happens in Uh this and how unnatural the events taking place are in this building. And everything, like the light comes in weird, the walls taper oddly, nothing really matches, even the stones are laid in a way that's a little unsettling. Right. And the the sets, I thought, were built so wonderfully. And everything is so vertical, mm-hmm. which is amazing because this is all indoors at Universal Studios uh, on one of the sound stages. Mm-hmm. And it's just so huge. But, you know, James Whale was uh, an art decorator himself before a director, and he would create sets. So he's very stylistic mm-hmm. uh, in the way he shoots things. And also German expressionism was so huge at the time, and it really plays into Frankenstein, like you could see lots of similarities between this and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And one of the things that I love that you really can't tell in the movie, but you could see it in still photos, is if you notice in the laboratory or the dungeon where the monster's being kept, there's windows mm-hmm. and there's light coming from the windows, and you can see like the shadows of the bars and the windows on the wall. All those shadows and light and bars were painted on the walls. It wasn't from a real light. Really? I mean, there was a light back there to give the illusion, but the shadows are all painted on. Oh, wow. Which is really incredible. Okay. I really want to look at some stills. So where were we? We were talking about brains and the school. So the brains are conveniently left out for the students to examine. And that's when Fritz drops in to take the normal brain, Mm -hmm. gets startled and ends up dropping it and ends up taking the abnormal brain right he drops it because of a loud banging sound what do you think that was i that i don't know it's like someone just crashed a cymbal just to scare someone yep so we end up getting introduced to victor and elizabeth elizabeth gets a cryptic letter from henry talking about his experiments and um she's confiding in victor 
regarding the contents of this letter. Uh Um, It is very clear that Victor is in love with Elizabeth and he makes it very clear to her that he would wish that she was with him. Right. Um, And I thought that this would lead to a love triangle of some sort. There is no payoff on this. I think that this is not necessary. Did they cut something out? Like, no, I just think, you know, in, in my imagination, the character of Victor is just such a pointless character. They're like, we need to give this guy something to do. And I think he was sort of a heartthrob at the time. So they wanted him to be this romantic character. So they just threw a little bit of that in there for them, you know? Okay. okay. It just, there's no reason. And he is somewhat of a pointless character. I do like that he's a friend to Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, he's Um, also, you know, the best man of Henry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, the guy's so shady. <laughs> There's very little things that are redeeming about him. Even though he is in love with Elizabeth, though, he at no point tries to sabotage Henry right. he, in he, any way. He, like, he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, he warns Henry that they're coming up so that he can like look presentable and is constantly helping him and taking care of things. But I just thought it was really... He, he can't help his feelings. <laughs> I think they could have easily have given him a throwaway... Storyline with someone else like that, like yeah, not with her. It just one of the maids, maybe. Yeah, something like that. It just, I don't know. I yeah. just found it really unnecessary. <laughs> so uh, Victor uh, is played by John Bowles, who I don't know much about him except Frankenstein. He wasn't in the sequel or anything, hmm. so I don't know what happened to him. And Elizabeth, uh, we meet at this point, and her name is May Clark. And her most famous thing that she was in was The Public Enemy, which is the movie where James Cagney threw a grapefruit in her face. And she said she could never look at breakfast the same way again. That's from the great movie ride. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But it's a true story. Okay. So they end up talking to the professor and he breaks down essentially pretty much what is happening with Henry at the moment. There you have his mad dream. I love his office, by the way, filled with skulls. I, there's just so many skulls in his office. So they end up getting him to reluctantly agree to go to the lab with them. And um, here we have like this amazing little stormy model that they end up showing us. Uh-huh. I loved it. And it's a gnarly storm that is hitting that area. And we go into the lab. We see them setting up everything. We see them um, a bunch of like electrical Bzz, 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 things a lot of loud noises <laughs> um a lot of those tesla coils mm-hmm. just stuff and they are talking about what they're gonna do as they're talking someone comes knocking by and it's the fam i put down the fam <laughs> well before you get there i just want to mention um when he's talking with Fritz about what they're going to be doing. And he says, and here's the final touch. And he reveals the head of the monster. Mm-hmm. It's wrapped up, but you can still see the top of his head. I love when he says they're going to throw the switches again. And he puts the, the towel back over his face and he does it so slowly. And he's just like grinning at him like he is so proud and enthralled with what he's about to create. It's just such a great moment oh you can see like all of his crazy we get to see how insanely in love and how consumed he is by what he's doing yeah and how crazy like you see it kind of in the cemetery when he's like putting his cheeks so softly against that coffin and uh-huh. you know is cryptically saying his little quote 
But here you just see that he is 100% consumed and determined to create life. And is, I believe, comparing himself to God at some point. Oh, yeah, throughout. Did you notice, you know, it's it's Boris Karloff that's lying on the table. But I always thought it was funny because his arms are exposed, but his arms always look a different color than how he is later in the movie. Mm-hmm. I always wonder if maybe he wasn't painted up. It was just Boris's normal skin and not the color they ended up using later. Oh, I don't think I, I did not catch any of that. Mm. It might just be shadows and not enough light on him at that point, but I don't know. So the fam arrives and Frankenstein is having none of this and tells them all to go several times. But eventually he opens the door and lets them in, but still is like, you need to leave. And Victor ends up calling him crazy. You're crazy! Crazy, am I? We'll see whether I'm crazy or not. And this really sets him off, essentially. And he's like, I'll show you who's crazy. Uh And invites them into the lab to prove that he's not crazy. They are 100% not convinced as he's explaining to them what he's doing. Like, you can see the word look on their faces. And he tells them everything he's been doing. He's telling them that he's been robbing graves. (laughs) He tells them all the things. That body is not dead. It has never lived. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. They're so concerned. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So here we get the very iconic scene of the body being wheeled up because the storm is peaking right um, right over the lab. And so they wheel it up onto the roof, Uh which I love this set because it's one continuous shot pretty much of following it all the way up to the roof. And the storm really bears down on it. It comes back down, and as it comes down, it's very lightly moving. And then, you know, the hand's moving, and you get the, it's alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. And everyone, I believe, restrains him. Yeah, because he's going mad. He's just going crazy. But, you know, the version we watched has a deleted line put back in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the line where he says, In the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. Oh, oh. Uh, After a preview screening in 1931, they cut that line out because it was blasphemous, basically. Mm -hmm. And it was gone for 50 years. Okay. And uh, it was put back in in the mid-80s. Now I know what it feels like to be God. Oh. Well, I think this was a longer version that we watched, was it not, than the original? The version we watched, which is the Blu-ray version, which looks incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's like no imperfections at all with it. This has the deleted stuff put back into it, which uh, it was restored in 1986. Okay. This is how it was in the original preview screening, and then they cut it out. So it was gone from 1931 to 1986. Wow. Okay. So they restrain him, and then we end up seeing the Baron, who is his father, who is a curmudgeon of an old man, um, who's very worried. And we are introduced to the Burgermaster. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Burgermaster. And um, he comes in asking about a wedding, uh, Henry and Elizabeth's wedding. And the whole town is really geared up for this wedding. The dad is pretty much convinced that he has another woman. And that's the only thing that could possibly keep him from getting married. Elizabeth is trying her best to dispel any of these ideas right 
um, that he has, but he's not buying any of it. By the way, the actor who plays Baron Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Henry's father, mm-hmm. uh, Frederick Kerr, did you notice the lump on his neck? Yes, I did. <laughs> that lump is so distracting. <laughs> he has this giant cyst growing out of the side of his neck. Human bodies, man. They do things. So they cut back to Frankenstein and the doctor talking about the monster. Have you ever wanted to dream? Ask why the trees bud? Well, if you say that, people call you crazy. <laughs> the doctor lets him know that he has a criminal brain. So now everyone knows that for sure the criminal brain is in this monster. Right. Um, and that is the first sign that we see from Frankenstein, where he's just a little worried about what he may have done, but then brushes it off real quickly. Oh, well, after all, it's only a piece of dead tissue. The monster walks in, and I really love this reveal. He walks into the door, the door which he already knows how to open a door, and then you find out that he's walking backwards. A great touch. Which, I think they're upstairs, are they not? They are upstairs, yes. So did he walk up the stairs backwards? I don't know. <laughs> but it's so interesting that they're just having this conversation, and you just hear the footsteps in the background. Like, it happens... 10, 15 seconds without them even realizing. You just hear the footsteps. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't seen the movie, you don't really pay attention to it. But all of a sudden, here he comes. And all you see is this silhouette of walking backwards. And then he turns around for the reveal. And then it's these three quick cuts, close-ups, pushing in on him. Yeah. Which I thought was really great. And um, the lighting on it is so beautiful. I feel like they may have greased up the lens a little bit also. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little it's a little just glowy and he looks amazing. Well, he's a newborn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have to show that in the camera. He follows basic commands. He's not used to light. They're trying to see what he can and cannot do. So, uh Henry's talking to him and tells him to sit down. They turn on a light and he is Well, they open up a skylight. Okay. So the sun's out and he reacts and he looks up and he reaches towards the heavens where he was born. And And what I thought was always interesting is at one point he's reaching for the sky and Dr. Frankenstein pops into frame and you hear Dr. Waldman saying, Take care, Frankenstein, take care. (laughs) I always thought that was Dr. Frankenstein calling the monster Frankenstein saying, take care there, Frankenstein, take care. Because he's reaching towards the sky. (laughs) And he's all befuddled. All of this, and we talked about this earlier, there's no music. Yeah. So it's a lot of silence of him just gesturing or very light moans. Right. And this is also the first moment that he does his begging hands thing, Mm -hmm. which Boris Karloff does throughout his portrayal of the monster in this one and the sequels, which is always my favorite uh, Frankenstein hand movement. That and the wiping away. (laughs) (laughs) He is afraid of fire. We find out. Yeah, it's so weird when Dwight Fry comes with that torch, his reaction, because he doesn't really know how to talk yet at this point. It's just, it's restrained roars and mumbles where it's just... Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, he's startled. So I completely forgot by this point that he had a criminal brain, even though they just, they were just talking about it. It was one of those things where I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, criminal brain. But there's something about him that made me super sympathetic towards him. Well, that's the thing. Karloff and Whale, they wanted him to be a sympathetic creature, and he was. And I always felt that the criminal brain wasn't really needed. That yeah. that kind of hurts it. Because 
he doesn't do anything, especially in this movie, that is criminal. He, well... I mean, he does things because he doesn't know any better. Or he's pushed to do things. So he becomes violent. I felt like he was just um, really startled. And then everyone pounces on him. And that agitates the situation. (laughs) Aggravates the situation. Makes it a little bit worse than it needed to be. So from there, he ends up being chained up. And Fritz shows up. And Fritz is wild. Fritz is (laughs) going crazy. All he wants to do is torture him for some reason. Yes, he's so abusive. So I did write down, he's going to die. Yeah, I mean, he deserves to die. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I mean, this is, imagine a newborn and there's this guy that's just whipping you and shoving fire in your face all the time. I mean, but it's like what? Like a seven foot tall newborn. Yeah. So, um, but uh, I always thought it was funny because there's, there's one shot, a close up of the monster when the fire is getting pushed into his face where it looks like he's smiling. <laughs> <laughs> so lo and behold, the monster murders Fritz and is now unchained. He's free. Yeah, and Dr. Frankenstein and Dr. Waldman hear Fritz screaming, and they go down and check it out. And when they're walking down the stairs, you just hear the echoes of the monster's roar. (coughs) That's one of the scariest moments in the movie for me. I just... It's so scary hearing the way he's roaring there. I don't know why, but it just is. growling. And then they open the door, and they see his body hanging there. Talking about the criminal brain business, though, he's hanging there. So he tied a noose. It's not like he choked him out or (laughs) hit him on the head or something. He strung him up. That's true. All right. There you got me. Because doesn't Henry take, he takes the whips from Fritz. Yeah. So. Maybe he had another whip. Whatever. (laughs) Either way. I mean, that's where you, I think that that's a really great reminder that he's not just a newborn quote-unquote right something is off with him to begin with and he's going back to that that intuition of a person who was horrible okay so the doctor this whole time has been insisting on killing it as soon as the monster was created the doctor's like you need to kill it and henry's like no right (laughs) so they decide that they're going to sedate it But in this skirmish, the doctor is knocked out and Henry is very much attacked. Yeah. And they thankfully uh, use the hypodermic needle to uh, knock the monster out. But in the scuffle, did you notice the weird spit coming out of the monster's mouth? Mm -mm. So if you especially if you look at the movie frame by frame, when he's fighting with Dr. Frankenstein, at one point, there's this weird giant thing of spit that's like drool that's coming out of the monster's mouth and it gets like sucked back in and then it comes back out and then back in and it's just really weird and i don't really know exactly what it is it (laughs) might just be spit yeah (laughs) but it's just crazy because i someone pointed it out online one time and i was like i never noticed that it's weird (laughs) so elizabeth and the baron are dropping in they're coming down and um victor comes in i believe and warns them hey, they're here. So the dad comes in. He's this 100% curmudgeon-y old man trying to get into the building and grumbling the whole way up those steps. He um, sees the torch on the floor and he's like, what, are you trying to burn the place down? <laughs> <laughs> he's almost a little of a comic relief. Oh, he for sure is. Um, that's... Mm, Not uh, as much as Uno O'Connor. No, thankfully. <laughs> I think that they took his character and they were like, let's amp it up. 
Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I think that he was a good balance on this where he's 100% oblivious to everything happening. He just does not care. It's his way or the highway. They come upon um, Henry and Henry is in the lab and he is a little disheveled looking and ends up passing out. He's exhausted and he's whisked away by the family. Yeah. So, and what do they do to uh, to cure him, to make him feel better? Brandy. In old movies, does Brandy just solve everything? I think so. <laughs> I just, every time I think of that, I think of, like, wasn't it like St. Bernard's in the Alps yeah. or something? They would have a little... I always thought that was to keep people warm, though, because they're in the snow. Yeah, I think so, too. What does Brandy do to make people feel good? I don't know. I guess it just makes their injuries feel not so bad because they're drunk? If you know the medicinal properties of Brandy, tweet at us, email us at podsandmonsters <laughs> at gmail.com. So the doctor is seen to Frankenstein or is seen to the monster. He's going to destroy him. And will destroy him. But he is, in the meantime, writing down some dissection notes. And mm-hmm. in it, he mentions in the note that we're reading that he's getting stronger and he needs more doses of the sedative to keep him knocked out, which is really great because now you know that monster can wake up at any moment yeah. and he does yeah. <laughs> he totally does and he kills the doctor yeah such a great scene he's dead still and his arm just raises up and chokes him out uh you know i never realized until i was older that the monster's shirt was rolled up mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and he's gonna dissect him there i just thought it was i don't know what i thought but i never thought that he was winnie the pooing it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Frankenstein's monster likes which, to Winnie the Pooh it. Which I think is interesting because in the next shot when he's leaving, his jacket is buttoned. So the monster knows how to button a jacket. Well, I'm realizing that the monster knows how to do a lot of things. <laughs> monster knows because I think he was also shackled. So he was uh-huh. tied down. So he yeah. knows how to get out of that. He, well, knows he can how break to open, out of anything. He knows how to open doors. Yeah. Because even then when he goes, he pulls that door open. Yeah, they unlock it. Mm-hmm. He's able to tie a noose. Yep. They will do button his shirt so, <laughs> or his jacket. And then when he's leaving, he does this really weird walk where he's, his arms are just limbering in front of him. Like he almost looks like maybe like a, like a gorilla or something with his arms just swinging there. And it's just so eerie. And I like when he when he's leaving, he first walks into the room where Fritz's body was or is. And he gets like freaked out by it. like, no, I don't want to go back in there. Yeah. And then ends up leaving. Yeah. Um, There's just so many subtle things that Boris Karloff did that wouldn't have been in the script that he added in there. And it makes you realize how important it was to get a great actor to play the monster where people thought you're just going to be a lumbering monster. Anyone can play the part. Obviously, that's not true. Mm mm. No, there's a lot like in his face. Yeah, he has a lot of subtleties. The way he holds his arms, everything. I can't imagine. Well, I know that there are other people that play Frankenstein in sequels yeah. and whatnot. I mean, I love the movies, but none of them come close to being what Boris Karloff did. Yeah. I mean, the the first one that wasn't Boris Karloff was Lon Chaney Jr. and goes to Frankenstein, and he basically plays him like a robot. Um, We see Henry. Henry is resting. He is sitting in his estate or wherever, by a lake, I think. With his dogs. With and his Elizabeth. dogs, Elizabeth, he's reconnecting. He's like, let's get married. And she's like, let's do it. And we have a wedding. The whole village is celebrating. So I like that um, they go through the village. I like all of these shots of the villagers 
getting ready. On the Universal Studios back lot. Yes. Um, were they like on a cart or a wagon and being pulled? Because it's very bumpy footage. <laughs> it's probably a car or something. Okay. <laughs> we're introduced to little Maria and her cat and her dad. She's picking daisies and she's asking um, her dad if she'll if he'll join her and he says that he can't he's too busy so she goes down to the lake and uh, Frankenstein shows up and uh, she asks him to play she picks daisies for him yeah and I love that she isn't afraid of him yeah she just wants a friend I'm Maria will you play with me yeah which is very much like the real actress she wasn't afraid of him she just wanted to be friends with Boris Karloff as the monster. Oh, this little girl's very good. She's a very good little actress. Marilyn Harris. So she gives him some daisies, and as she hands him the daisies, he notices her hands and examines her hands. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is another interesting touch, because, you know, he's a newborn as, you know, his only experience is seeing adults. Mm-hmm. So he's never seen this tiny little person before. He's like, I've never seen hands so small before. I think... Also, no one has ever really approached him in that way that we've seen. We've just seen him in this super abusive Mm -hmm. um, situation with Henry and Fritz. Mm -hmm. So now there is someone who wants to interact with him and is not afraid of him. And she shows him how to make boats with these little daisies and they're throwing them into the water. I can make a boat. See how mine floats? He ends up getting really excited and he throws this little girl into the lake Mm -hmm. and she is protesting the whole time and (laughs) um, he gets very freaked out and runs away. Yeah. I always thought (laughs) he looked like Herman Munster (laughs) when he was shocked. And then, of course, they have the fast motion of him running away, which I never liked the fast motion. So basically, you were saying earlier that that was his criminal brain killing her. I think it was a tenacity to just go a little further than necessary. Well, I read it, which I think it's supposed to be, is it was just the natural progression of things in his mind. He was playing with her. They were making boats. They ran out of flowers. And he's like, well, let's make something else float. Maybe you could float. So he throws her in just to see if she could float. But it's, yeah, I guess so. I'm just like, he didn't even like try to help her out. He just reaches for her when she's struggling and stuff. But he could have gotten in the water, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) But he was really freaking out afterwards. Yeah, but he was really calm by the time we see him again getting to Elizabeth. But, you know, that's another scene that was deleted. Yes. Um, They cut it to where he would just reach for her and then it would go to the next scene, which Boris Karloff wanted that to be the cut. He didn't want to film the scene Mm -hmm. because he thought it was too evil of a thing to do. But James Whale said it was all part of the ritual. It had to happen. The ritual. Uh, Yeah, basically his character had to, the monster needed to experience this. Uh, But I think it would have been better just having the monster reach for Maria and cutting. See, Boris's reasoning for wanting to cut it is because it was too evil. I think it's better cutting it because you don't know what happened and it could have been much more evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think... When censors did cut it and have him only reach for her, inadvertently, they made it much more evil. Yeah, because you don't know. Yeah, yeah you're able could have to done come anything up. To yeah, her. agreed. Very much agreed. Um, and I do think that the part where he's running away, was that in the original also? Or no, it was no. just cut. Because that, I do think it's a little bit comical, the way that he runs away. Yeah, because it's fast motion, mostly. Yeah. 
So it, if they just cut it, I think it's very effective that way. Not to say that this still isn't effective because yeah. that little girl knows how to play a dead body. <laughs> she does. So good. Is that where we're at, the dead body part? No, I am at Elizabeth and Henry and I put down room to room shot. They go through, I believe, three walls and I thought it was great. Yeah, they do that on sitcoms sometimes. I loved it. I love it so much because I it just, I don't know, it's just so good that they thought to build that side of a wall i don't know they basically for the set of the castle that they're that they live in they built the hallway and the two rooms all together so the camera could pan from room to room Mm -hmm. without a cut which is very neat yeah so elizabeth is worried for for henry and um is worried that the doctor is not there uh, once again, in typical fashion of these movies, they tell the woman that she is just overreacting and everything will be fine in a very condescending way. Mm-hmm. It's my one really major qualm with it. But whatever. Twas the time, I suppose. But I will say, women always know when something's awry. <laughs> well, they just lock her in. So Okay, so that's like one of my biggest things is, okay, Victor shows up. And Victor, how does he know? But he knows that the monster has been terrorizing the well, villagers. He found, Dr. he found Dr. Waldman. But then he says that he's been terrorizing the villagers, which I think is very interesting because then we still haven't seen Maria's dad walk through the village yet. Yeah. And then, yeah, the most not irrational. It is an irrational thing that they do. They lock Elizabeth in this room. Which they do it for her protection, which fine, if, if you feel like that's what you need to do. But to have. She's on ground level. Yeah, to be on ground level <laughs> with windows that are open, that's not a safe thing to do. <laughs> so um, we see the monster, we hear his growl, and they don't know where it's coming from in the castle. So they take off in all directions to go look for him. And it turns out that he's creeping on Elizabeth in this room. And he attacks her. The guys are, at this point, downstairs. Yeah. And this is where you get my favorite close-up of the monster when it goes... (laughs) And she's just screaming back and they're, like, exchanging vocals. (laughs) So he attacks Elizabeth. And from here, it cuts to Maria's father walking with a very dead Maria Mm -hmm. um, through a joyful village. So he is killing the mood as he's walking through. Rightfully so. Yeah, this is the scariest scene of the movie to me. The way he's walking and just the, he looks so shocked and she is such a good dead body. Yeah, he yeah he just has this blank stare on. Then you hear the, probably her friends, the kids saying, look, it's Maria. And everyone's having a good time. And as he walks by, they all stop and stare. And, and then and, they start following. And an interesting thing, which someone has picked up on, which uh, I think is very neat. I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but it could be. If you notice, little Maria, one of her socks is rolled down and the other sock is up high when she's dead. Remember earlier, Dwight Fry, when he's going up the stairs, he stops because his sock is rolled down and then he pulls it back up. Basically, earlier in the movie, uh, as you said, the family is knocking on the door. He says... No one's there. And he walks back upstairs to where Dr. Frankenstein is, but he stops and he just he's just mumbling to himself and lifts up his sock. So someone had the idea that that symbolism for death, his sock being rolled down shows that he's going to die. Hmm. But he brings it back up because he's not dead yet. Mm -hmm. And then little Maria, she does die and her sock is rolled down. So does the sock mean something? I don't know, but it's interesting. Yeah. Huh. 
It's a really interesting uh, connection. But my question is, why does little Maria's father assume that she's been murdered and didn't just drown playing by herself? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's always that's a good question. question. Unless the monster went running by him. Maybe, but I... But we don't see, we never see that. Yeah. But again, maybe Victor told him. Who knows? <laughs> Victor's been doing a lot off camera. Victor, well, yeah, he has been doing a lot off camera. So possibly. So they postponed the wedding to kill the monster. And now we get the famous cliche of villagers with torches, which yep. happens from every monster movie from then on, basically. Man, the Burgermaster <laughs> is just like, we're going to do this, guys. You guys are going to the hill. You guys are going to wherever. The lake. The lake and you guys are going to somewhere else. Um, so everyone grabs their torches and pitchforks and they take off to go find the monster. And uh, there's a shot of the villagers, which are all men going out and all of the scared women Mm -hmm. in the houses and the homes. And so it's a lot of the faces of like the children being pulled into the houses. And it was just uh, Beauty and the Beast killed the beast really just kind of played in my head. (laughs) I was playing that in my head too. I was doing uh, so it's time to take some action (laughs) boys it's time to follow me (laughs) (laughs) so from here they end up chasing the monster into the hills and here's that beautiful background backdrop that shows up um, with complete with wrinkles complete with the same wrinkles in the exact same places um, I love it so much. And I think this backdrop must have been huge. It was yeah. it was huge. So here, Henry and the villagers get separated, uh, which seems like a very, uh, now a cliched horror trope where uh-huh. you will get separated. And he faces the monster alone. And here, when he sees the monster, he rises up from behind a rock and and uh, he's on a slope and because he's on a slope it looks like he's eight feet tall because mm-hmm. boris karloff was uh 5'11 i think mm-hmm. and wearing all the stuff he probably was six six maybe he's not like if you look at the shots of him stalking elizabeth earlier in the movie he's not that much bigger than her mm-hmm. but this particular shot because he's rised up on that edge he's just towers over dr frankenstein He's very imposing, even when he's not terribly larger than everyone else. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. It's great imagery. It's really good. They really play him up so well. Mm-hmm. So they face off a little bit and Henry's subdued and he takes him up to the windmill. So from here, they go to, they go to the roof of the windmill. The villagers arrive and Frankenstein ends up throwing, or sorry, the Frankenstein monster. He ends up throwing uh, Henry from the roof. And yeah. this might be one of my favorite things ever. It was a dummy that they threw. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was it a life-size dummy. I don't think so. Because I don't think this is a life-size windmill. You know, what could have been. I'm, I'm not positive. I, th- I think it was life-size, thinking about it. I'm not <laughs> positive, though. But I always felt like they could have redone the shot because his body like moves in such unnatural ways (laughs) you know but when they're fighting the monster and dr frankenstein 
I love the way they fight and the monster. Even in the sequels, when it's Boris Karloff, he always has such unique punches. Like in this one, he clenches both hands and just goes after him. Like, oh, yeah, why like is that the actual reaction? Yeah, that's you know? a weird. And then there's that great shot where they're both on opposite ends of the windmill gears turning. Mm-hmm. And it's one shot of, of Dr. Frankenstein and one shot of the monster where it's almost the exact same shot. And it kind of correlates to being uh they're one and the same like one created the other it kind of reminded me of a zoetrope yeah they're in the same position almost yeah um so it was almost very seamless when they go between from one to the other yeah i always think it's funny also (laughs) so they're fighting and the villagers are trying to get in and they have of course they have this big piece of wood that they're trying to knock the door in with very ineffectively and at the front is ludwig maria's father and he says one more time and so many times he's like one more time one more time. One more time. <laughs> well, he's not going to say, okay, guys, five more times and we'll get it by the fifth time. Every time needs to be one more time. I guess. <laughs> so um, he throws him from the roof and he ends up landing on one of the little things on the windmill. Yeah. And ends up falling by the villagers. And I love how the villagers are like, okay, let's just take him back. And they're like, we're taking him back. Let's set fire to this windmill. We're done here. And uh, they start throwing all of their torches on it and set fire to it. The monster ends up getting trapped in the fire. Yep. And then they cut away. Well, that was supposed to be the end of the movie originally. That was it. Oh, wait. So then like the little scene at the end that was added in the 80s? No, no, no. The... Originally, it was supposed to end with Dr. Frankenstein being thrown. He dies. Oh. And the windmill just gets burned down. And Colin Clive, when he got the part of Dr. Frankenstein, he was really excited to play the role, especially knowing that it was going to have this dark ending, that his character was going to die. But by the time it was uh, going to be released, they saw an early cut of the movie and the... uh, producers you know the lemleys the owners of universal they wanted to tack on a happy ending so that's what they did and with that dr frankenstein is alive mm-hmm. and now can appear in the sequel yeah <laughs> so we find out that he's alive and then um they were back at the castle and the dad the the maids come in to give him the special wine that he has made a really big deal of earlier in the movie and being the wonderful person that he is says my son doesn't need that and uh drinks the wine in front of these people and then it literally just cuts to the end he says here's to a son to the house of frankenstein which is great because house of frankensteins is another one of my favorite movies um they do say young frankenstein in the in the the, uh toast previous to this (laughs) that's right And then the maid saying, indeed, sir, we hope so, sir. The end. So how'd you feel about the picture? I thought it was great. I think it has a lot of really beautiful imagery. Yeah. A lot of surreal imagery. Boris Karloff is amazing. And yeah, I just, you know, there's some things that I just don't, I was like, meh, they didn't include that. But overall, it's, it's a it's a really good movie yeah, and it's very entertaining and I liked it. I liked it a lot. Well, as you know, I love it. As yes. I said, it's uh, probably my favorite movie of all time. I think what I'm getting, what's really hard on me right now is the abrupt endings. <laughs> <laughs> that might be something about old filmmaking. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it's over. <laughs> 
uh, but I mean, do you think it would have you would have had that same abrupt ending feeling if they ended it the original way and didn't tack on that happy ending? If it just faded out with the flames going out? Oh, I think I still would have been like, oh, that's it. Okay. So how would you have ended it? I don't know. I think there's always just more of a resolution with stuff or there's a little bit longer than like 90 seconds yeah you know they kind of do that throughout the sequels like even in bride of frankenstein the castle explodes and then you see dr frankenstein and elizabeth standing there going darling darling the end (laughs) (laughs) so many movies end that way yeah from those times yeah i think so that's my biggest hang-up which is fine i mean i just have to get used to it i just always forget and then movies end very abruptly and then my favorite thing which is really i think a james wales staple i don't know if it's a universal thing because they didn't I don't think they did it in dracula but i love when they show the cast at the end it always says on top a good cast is worth repeating <laughs> one of my favorite quotes and here they give boris karloff his credit he's yes. not a question mark anymore. i noticed that but yeah great movie well do you want to hear about the uh story of how frankenstein was made yes please that'd be great all right let's get into it Think of it, the brain of a dead man, waiting to live again in a body I made with my own hands. With my own hands. Do you know who wrote Frankenstein? Mary Shelley. Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. (laughs) Uh, She started writing it in 1816, and it was released in 1818. In fact, it uh, last year celebrated its 200th anniversary. Oh. So she started writing in 1816, and she was with a group of contemporaries, Lord Byron being one of them, and he had an idea that the group of writers should all come up with ghost stories on this dark and stormy night. And they reenact this in the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein. I was about to ask if that was the beginning. Yeah. So Mary Shelley is quoted to saying the following about her coming up with the idea of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. She says, I saw with shut eyes but acute mental vision the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing that he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful machine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror-stricken. So... She came up with this idea, which was such a, a leap from anything that had been written before, really. Just uh-huh. just going through the history of Frankenstein, I was just reading a little bit about Mary Shelley. I thought her, the way she died was kind of interesting. Apparently, she died clutching the heart of her lover, Percy <laughs> Shelley. Excuse me? <laughs> so apparently, her lover, Percy Shelley, her husband died, I don't know, 20, 30 years before her and was cremated and everything was burned except there were pieces of his heart that didn't burn. And someone gathered the remains of the heart and gave them to her and she would keep them in in a piece of linen. Okay. And apparently when she died, she was holding on to this linen wrapped pieces of his heart, which I think is a very, very fitting for the person who wrote Frankenstein. (laughs) This is going to happen with us, just so you know. (laughs) You're going to hold out of my heart? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the book is written. The first film version. Do you know what the first film version is? This is not the first film version? It is not. One of the earliest horror movies, if not 
the earliest, it's the earliest one that I've seen, mm-hmm. is a 1910 version of Frankenstein made by Thomas Edison's studio. Oh. A silent movie. And it's more like the way the monster is invented, basically, is there's this big box and all this stuff's going on and he just kind of materializes inside of this box. So it's not as scientific as... Mm as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. It's almost magic. Okay. But it's neat. And he's a really scary looking weird Frankenstein with long hair and long fingers. And, mm. But that was the first version. And then in 1927, there was a play version in London. And in 1930, there was a revival. And in that version, Hamilton Dean played the monster. Do you remember who Hamilton Dean is? No, but the name is very familiar. Well, we talked about him on the Dracula episode. He wrote Dracula. Oh, okay. Yeah. So at this point, Frankenstein was known throughout the world as being a classic work of literature. Mm -hmm. The play is popular, and they decide that they're going to make a movie. Universal decides, and they want to do it as a follow-up to Dracula. So Dracula came out. It was a huge success, and they decided that Bela Lugosi was going to star in the movie, and it was going to be directed by a man named Robert Flory. Flory was really involved in writing his version of Frankenstein. He wrote a treatment, and in his version of Frankenstein, the monster wasn't sympathetic. He was just sort of a uh, an unmanageable brute, okay, <laughs> as Dracula says in Habit and Costello Meet Frankenstein. But he did invent the uh, criminal brain aspect. And another thing that he had in his script, again, which wasn't part of the book or the play, mm-hmm. was the finale of the windmill. Oh. And do you know how he came up with that? What he was inspired by? No. When he was writing, he looked out the window and the he window. saw and he saw Vanda Camp Bakery, which had a giant windmill. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. The one here? I think so. No. Yeah, there used to be a giant <laughs> windmill. So at the same time when Flory is developing his script, uh, Universal bought the rights to the play and had John Balderston writing a script himself at the same time for some unknown reason it's never it's never explained why but this did not make robert flory happy he was upset by this because mm-hmm. he had done a lot of work on his script and flory had some interesting scenes that were in his script that didn't make the final cut mm-hmm. in the james whale version would you like to hear what they were yes please so there was one scene that was in his script where there was uh two peasants named johan and gretel <laughs> and they were uh preparing to make love and then the monster <laughs> is uh <laughs> the monster is peering through the window <laughs> and he's looking at them watching and he bursts in and he uh attacks them and and he throws Johan into the corner and attacks Gretel. And the scene ended with this shot, this close-up of the monster. And in the background, you could see Johan and Gretel's kids are in the room, too. Oh, my gosh. And they're watching, like, their parents get killed. Uh-huh. So that was one scene that didn't make the crossover to the script that was filmed. Yeah, okay. Um, I can see how that might be an issue. There was also a puppet show scene where a devil puppet appears mm-hmm. which could have been fun you know it was in the village scene yeah i think that would have been really fun and then there was also an epilogue in this script warning the um the deaths of henry and the monster i guess mm. uh with elizabeth which obviously wasn't in the final version because they added the uh the new scene where dr frankenstein lives so robert flory he wrote this script 
they're getting ready to go. And as I told you, Lugosi was attached to be in the movie. And originally, he was going to play Dr. Frankenstein. Okay. But Carl Lemley Jr., who was running the studio at the time, he wanted to play up the fact that Bella Lugosi was Dracula. And he wanted him to be the next big horror star. He wanted him to be the monster. So he said, no, he's going to play the monster. This did not make Lugosi happy. He didn't want to play the monster because, you know, there were no lines. He had to wear a big makeup and it just wasn't what he wanted to do. But he was still going to do it. He just complained about it. Uh huh. They shot a screen test with Bela Lugosi playing the monster. And apparently he looked more like the golem in that, which was uh, a movie from the 1920s. It was a Jewish fairy tale with this giant clay-like rock monster with bangs and big hair Mm -hmm. and there's contradicting evidence as to whether it was a successful screen test or not successful rumor is people just laughed at it but according to robert flory people loved it Mm -hmm. so who knows it was probably that they didn't like it it's interesting how they came up with that look do you know how the monsters described in the book no Mary Shelley, in her book, she describes the monster as so. She says, His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful? Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of lustrous black and flowing. His teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriancies only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost as the same color as the dun white sockets which they were set. His shriveled complexion and straight black lips. So you look like Alice Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing that that I don't quite understand, though, is... Um, Jack Pierce, who ended up creating the final look, apparently worked on this screen test and he was working with Lugosi on how to create the way the monster should look and they didn't really agree and get along. So I'm wondering if Lugosi kind of did his own thing for this screen test and Jack Pierce wasn't as involved Mm -hmm. because obviously Jack Pierce took it a completely different way. The way that he's described in the book seems like it would be more of a haunting figure that like thinking of it is all kind of unsettling but in the movie it's more effective to have him just look off completely right it makes him more imposing immediately right off the bat instead of later on yeah so after the screen test Bela wasn't happy because he didn't want to play this part and Bela's wife recalled his experience and she said Bela wanted out he said I'll get a doctor's excuse because it was a six hour makeup ordeal (laughs) (laughs) Bela you see was the actor and he couldn't see himself moaning and grunting and that's all the monster did in the original film Bela thought you don't need an actor for that part anybody can moan and grunt I need a challenging part a part where I can act a part where I can act (laughs) (laughs) So he had all these complaints. He didn't turn down the role, as the rumor is, but he complained the whole time. Another interesting thing that contradicts all this stuff going on is Robert Flory himself, the original director, said that the Lugosi test was done in the same makeup Karloff wore, which everyone else says it's the Golem makeup. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where Robert Flory is getting this information, (laughs) if he's making it all up or what, but there's just lots of 
discrepancies as to what Robert Flory says and what everyone else says. So at this point, James Whale comes onto the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Whale was a successful director, and Universal wanted to give him a contract. And they gave him his choice of any script to direct, and he chose Frankenstein. He thought it would be a challenging, fun thing for him to do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Robert Flory gets furious because oh, it was his movie to direct. Oh, so they just like took it directly from him they took it from him gave it to james whale and instead robert flory got murders in the rue morgue uh with bela lugosi which uh is still a good movie it's no frankenstein but Mm -hmm. it's good but i think frankenstein i guess then wouldn't have been frankenstein if it had been him it would have been a different frankenstein yeah and then around that time too they decided uh that lugosi shouldn't be in it either that he would go with flory to murders of the rue morgue yeah because he was complaining my complainer sin over there yeah and i I think James Whale wanted someone different. So not only did James Whale take the role of Frankenstein, but they also removed Robert Floyd's name from the credits of having written the screenplay. Because even though they did rewrite it, they used a lot of his ideas, like the criminal brain, the windmill. So he was furious and he voiced his complaints and Universal ended up siding with him. So it was too late to fix the United States copies of Frankenstein, but the international versions do have his name in the credits as one of the writers. So Whale had a new script written and, you know, he put uh, his touch into it, made the uh, monster sympathetic. And he also added little Maria to the story mm-hmm. and now they had to find their monster they needed to find someone to play the frankenstein monster there's a rumor that john carradine tested for the part but then turned it down mm-hmm. i don't believe that because john carradine do you know who john carradine is i assume he's related to the carradines he's their father he's in a bunch of monster movies but he played dracula in house of frankenstein and house of dracula mm-hmm but he's known to bend the truth and make up a lot of things. <laughs> so I don't think he tested for Frankenstein. He says he did. I don't think it's true. I turned down Frankenstein. Well, after doing... Morris took it. You're kidding. I turned it down. <laughs> You're like, I didn't see it. <laughs> I don't believe it. Well, one day, uh, James Whale was at the commissary at Universal Studios, and he saw a man named Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. And he called him over to his table, and he told Boris that his face has startling possibilities. Oh, my gosh. That is the most <laughs> horrible compliment, but I guess fantastic for Boris Karloff. Well, Boris, you know, he was a struggling actor. He uh, was having a hard time making ends meet. And would take anything, but he was very excited for this role. How old was he at this time? At this time, he was 43 or 44. Oh, wow. Okay. So he had been struggling. You know, he uh, came from London, went to Canada, ended up coming here and was in lots of bit parts. He had some good roles, like he was in a movie called The Criminal Code, which was really good from 1930, I think. But he got or he didn't get this part yet. James Whale wanted him. So James Whale, he did his own drawings of what the monster should look like. But then Karloff and Jack Pierce, the makeup man, got together and they spent countless hours, days, weeks even, creating what the monster should look like. Jack Pierce, he researched anatomy, surgery, medicine, criminal history, criminology, ancient and modern burial customs, and electrodynamics to create the monster. Hmm. So he did all this research on these different types of things to create him. And one of the things he did, which I thought was really interesting, was he read that Egyptians used to bind the hands and feet of criminals when they were buried. 
and it would elongate their limbs, hmm. which is why the monster looks like he has long limbs. He gave him a shorter jacket so his arms would look extra long. And he also saw in the uh, Egyptian burial customs that the the blood would pool to the end of their limbs, which is why the monster has the dark fingertips because it's the blood pooling at the end. Mm -hmm. He also said that the reason he has a flat head is because he thought of it as being a hinged head where he would just saw it off pop in the brain and put it back on but why would that make it flat yeah that doesn't make any sense he's like he compared it to a shoe box because like the lid of a shoe box but it doesn't make sense to me yeah it doesn't make so sense to i me don't either. know quite what he was thinking with the flat head even though it's great yeah. it makes him instantly iconic in yeah, it his makes profile abnormal like, could it have just been skin that was over his head and it's just a drum that you can <laughs> pat you know <laughs> this is hollow um, I have seen someone made a model of a skeleton of the monster where it was like all metal, the flat mm -hmm, part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has the clamps at the front mm -hmm. to clamp it on, which I think that's interesting. But then how would the hair grow on top? I don't yeah. know. Because, you know, in Bride of Frankenstein, his hair gets singed and grows back throughout the movie. So I don't know exactly what the flathead means. The monster they decided to give him the electrodes in the neck mm -hmm. uh, for the longest time people would call them bolts i always call them bolts but i always i guess when people say bolts they think it's to keep the head on mm -hmm. but i always thought bolts were meant electrodes which is basically it's the positive and negative charge that the monster gets to come alive mm -hmm. he could have just hooked that up anywhere on the body i saw michael scott talk about that once with a car where you just <laughs> that's right <laughs> just hook it up anywhere in the engine jack pierce gave the monster a blue green grease paint mm -hmm. uh so he would look deathly in black and white okay. on the screen. Uh, he wasn't as green as people mm -hmm. imagine. I feel like the green really came from when artists would colorize lobby cards and posters. Mm. And those colors on lobby cards are always very surreal. Right. Very bright. Yes. A lot of orange. So Boris Karloff had his own contributions to the makeup himself. Mm -hmm. um, after the, the makeup was somewhat finalized, Boris felt like he still looked too alive. So Boris decided that Jack Pierce should create fake eyelids for him to give him that look of not being able to open his eyes completely, mm -hmm. which I think is a great addition. It was a mortician's wax that was put over his eyes to create the eyelids. Oh. And then also, if you notice, it almost looks like the monster's face is caved in. He always has like this indent on his cheek. He, it's always sunken in. Yeah. That was done because Boris Karloff had a dental bridge there, and he would take out the dental bridge and kind of suck it in. So it almost looked like mm -hmm. he was caved in, which is such a great look, which he couldn't do in most of the scenes in Bride of Frankenstein because he had a talk in that one, and he can't talk without his dental bridge. Oh. And then later, that sunken in look, because he had the sunken in look, and Jack Pierce would highlight it with you know shades of of a dark makeup and later in the sequels when other actors played him they didn't have that sunken in look but they still wanted to keep something there it just turned into a beauty mark eventually <laughs> so if you notice the monster always has like a little mole over uh -huh. there that started with the sunken in dental bridge I have to being pay taken out i have to pay attention uh boris's costume it weighed 48 pounds and apparently i never knew this and i don't know if it's true but i read that there was a five pound spine added to him it was a rod 
that was attached on his back that would convey the current up to the monster's brain. But if you never see it, I don't know why it would be there. Yeah. So I don't know if that's really true, but it's interesting to think about. Mm Mm-hmm. His boots weighed 13 pounds each, so he was it, was it was heavy. Yeah. Also, there's this famous still photo of an early version of the monster. I think it was when Karloff did his test, where he didn't have the scar on his forehead yet, and instead he had these two indentations on his forehead, uh, almost like horns. Mm-hmm. They were like two, I don't want to say scars, because they're not scars, but they're two, they almost look like implants or something with... with some sort of metal over them. It, 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 I can't really explain it, but it's an interesting. It's an interesting look. He almost looks exactly the same. There's lots of photos that they used in promotion of that because it is so close to the makeup. But mm-hmm. you'll be able to tell the differences. But they almost look like horns. Hmm. So they did the test. The Lemleys loved it. Boris was hired, and uh, they started to make the movie. When they made the movie, the makeup each day took four to six hours a day to put on. That's insanity. So. Karloff, his day would just last forever because he would be sitting there doing the makeup and then have to act in this heat and then he uh, would have to take the makeup off. And, you know, he was one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he put into place with them was to give actors their rights of working, you know, a a decent day uh, without this crazy overtime. So he was really a part of that. Oh, wow. Because the makeup was so scary, Boris Karloff wasn't allowed to eat with the other <laughs> members of the Aww. of the crew or or when they would eat at the commissary, Boris wasn't allowed to go mm-hmm. because it was just too frightening. So he would eat his meals in his bungalow and he was so hot every day because of, you know, all the lights and everything and the, the costume being so heavy and the makeup, he was drenched. So he didn't want to be sitting there eating. So he would strip down and eat his lunch. So can you imagine a naked Frankenstein in the bungalow? <laughs> and you're taking the tour. And he's, just, he's just in there naked. And then apparently when he was walking around one day, a secretary fainted when uh, they saw him. And uh, Carl Emily Sr. demanded that from now on, if he leaves the set, he has to wear a sheet over his face. And Jack Pierce would have to walk him from, like, the bungalow to the set every day. Because that's not even more terrifying than, like, a person <laughs> who's over six feet tall walking with a sheet over yeah. their face. And there's photos of Jack Pierce walking him. Uh, I always thought that was funny. Apparently, to remove the makeup was the worst part of it. It was very painful for Boris. Mm. And I think he had some permanent scars uh, where the bolts were in his neck. Wow. Uh, but it took an hour and a half to two hours to remove. Jeez, and, you know, they have to use, like, acids to put on his face to remove it. And it wasn't good. So just a quick rundown of different actors. They hired uh, Colin Clive to play Dr. Frankenstein. He ended up dying only six years later. Oh, wow. He, For uh, what? He was a really big alcoholic and lots of drinking problems. Oh, and he wow. died of pneumonia, which was caused from the alcoholism somehow. Basically, I assume his body just couldn't fight the pneumonia he had. Mm-hmm. So he had a tragic life himself, but he sure was great in Frankenstein. And then there was May Clark, John Bowles, uh, Edward Van Sloan, who was also in Dracula and The Mummy, and Dwight Fry as Fritz. So the electrical equipment that we were talking about, mm-hmm. all those pieces were made by this guy named Kenneth Strickfadden. 
And he just made his living making these electrical machines that would spark and do things for these great movies. And they were used all through the sequels. And the same exact pieces were used in Young Frankenstein in the 70s as well. Oh, really? Yeah. We'll have to watch that. So all those machines that Kenneth Strickfadden made, you know, they were kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, when the table was rising... Uh, it was really Boris Karloff lying there and all these sparks are flying. So he said, really? he said of that scene, the scene where the monster was created amid booming thunder and flashing lightning made me as uneasy as anyone. For while I lay half naked and strapped to Dr. Frankenstein's table, I could see directly above me the special effects men brandishing the white hot scissors like carbons that made the lightning. I hoped that no one up there had butterfingers. so another actor that they added was marilyn harris who played little maria oh uh she loved boris karloff she came from a family who uh she had a really horrible stage mother and a horrible father who would abuse her and Mm. she had a very tough life and later in her life when they asked her about frankenstein she didn't really have a lot of memories because she would always think about the bad stuff around that time So the scene came when the monster was to throw her in the lake and Boris threw her and James Whale felt that she wasn't thrown far enough in. There would need to be a retake. And and her mom was just like, yes, throw her in again, throw her in again. So James Whale felt bad and he asked her if she would do it again and he would give her anything she wants in the world. What do you think she asked for? Uh, Time with Boris Karloff. (laughs) Because her horrible mother kept her on a strict diet, Uh all she wanted was a dozen hard-boiled eggs. So they redid the scene, Boris threw her in again, and true to his word, James Whale came back and gave her two dozen hard-boiled eggs. This is horrible. This (laughs) poor little girl. Yeah. And the scene ended up getting cut. (laughs) Well, but it came back. It did come back 50 years later. Yeah. Um, and then there's the scene of May Clark and Boris Karloff where he enters Elizabeth's room and he's stalking her. And she was really kind of freaked out by him in the makeup. Mm-hmm. So Boris said to her, like, you'll always know it's me because off camera, if you just look down, I'll be wiggling my little finger. And then you'll always know it is me, your good friend, Boris. <laughs> <laughs> so when he's attacking her, he's always wiggling his little finger. We can't see it, but <laughs> Apparently, during the climax of the movie, when uh, Colin Clive and Boris are having their fight, James Whale wanted it to be as real as possible. So they were really kind of going at it, and Colin Clive dislocated his arm. Oh, wow. Also, when Colin Clive was to be knocked out and the monster carries him to the windmill you can see him helping him i mean maybe at one point there when was. they're going up the stairs you can see colin's well most of the legs time, pumping well most of the time james whale gave him the direction to not help him at all look like you're really out mm-hmm. so boris carried him for take after take through all this really hurt his back and it was a problem that he had the rest of his life all these oh, wow. back problems he should have lifted with his knees i guess so So the movie uh, had its preview, and at that point was when they decided to cut out certain things. They cut out the In the Name of God line for Mm -hmm. blasphemy, and they cut out the drowning shots. There were some fighting shots that were cut out. They also cut out close-ups of Dwight Fry with a fire, because it was too scary. Okay. And uh, they also cut out the close-up of the hyperdermic needle being shoved into the monster huh and also at that point when they made those cuts they decided to add that happy ending it opened december 4th 1931 rave reviews 
and it was Frankenstein and Dracula together were re-released in 1938, I believe, which sort of brought the horror cycle back because it had kind of faded out by that time. Mm. And with the re-release of Frankenstein and Dracula is how Son of Frankenstein got made. Oh, Frankenstein is a great Christmas movie. Yeah, and uh, someone, someone asked Boris Karloff once what his thoughts were the first time he saw Frankenstein, and this is what he had to say. I had, of course, seen rushes of the picture, but never a connected version. And as the film progressed, I was amazed at the hold it was taking upon the audience. At the same time, I couldn't help wondering how my own performance would weather all the build-up. I was soon to know. Suddenly, out of the eerie darkness and gloom, there swept on the screen, about eight sizes larger than life itself, the chilling, horrendous figure of me as the monster. And then, just as suddenly, there crashed out over the general stillness the stage whisper of my wife's friend. Covering her eyes, gripping my wife by the shoulder, she screamed, Dot, how could you live with that creature? <laughs> uh, so that was Boris Karloff's uh, reaction of seeing Frankenstein for the first time with his wife and her friend. I like that his wife's name is Dot. <laughs> Dorothy. Yeah. So that is Frankenstein. Everyone was very happy with the way it turned out. It made a ton of money for the studio. Mm -hmm. Boris was very happy that people sympathized with the monster because that's what he was intending to create. And he loved the fact that kids really sympathized with him. It was clear from the letters they sent that while they were terrified by my characterization, at the same time they pitied the monster that I portrayed. And that pleased me because it was exactly what I had hoped. It spawned seven sequels, and Jeez Louise! And we uh, we all still know Frankenstein today, eighty-eight years later. I'm not a mathematician, so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Frankenstein, my favorite movie, uh, Inthia's new favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> sure. Until we watch uh, Bride of Frankenstein or anything yeah. else. Bride of Frankenstein is really my favorite movie. This one is. I, I put Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein together. Mm. So we hope you enjoyed reminiscing about Frankenstein and listening about the production and all that sort of thing. This was great. <laughs> Inthia, where can they find us? You can find us on Instagram at Pods and Monsters Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Pods and Monsters. Please subscribe, like, and review us. Yeah, so for Pods and Monsters, my name is Robert. I'm Inthia. And we will see you next time as we talk about more monsters of the screen. Ah, oh, I can't wait. Goodbye. Bye. As I said before, I say again, here's, here's to a son, to the house of Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs>